CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share how to ask for what you want, get the help you need to succeed, and look at evidence-based lessons for how you can get more of what you want with our guests, Dr. Wayne Baker and Larry Freed. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44. In our previous episode, we heard the incredible story of how our guest went from a bricklayer to working with some of the most powerful and influential people in the world and the amazing lessons that he learned about making things happen along the way with our previous guest, Steve Sims. Now for our interview with Wayne and Larry. Wayne E. Baker is an American author and sociologist on the senior faculty at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. He's best known for his research in economic sociology and his survey research on values where he documented America's core values. Larry Freed is the co-founder and former CEO of 4C, the founder of Second Stage Partners, and the author of Innovating Analytics, How the Next Generation of Net Promoter Can Increase Sales and Drive Business Results, and the book Managing Forward, How to Move from Measuring the Past to Managing the Future. Larry is also currently the CEO of Give and Take. Wayne and Larry, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. Great to be here, Matt. Thanks. Well, I'm really excited to have you back on, Wayne, and I'm excited to have you on the show as well, Larry. You know, you guys have put together a really interesting project, uh, and I want to get into the science behind it and some of the research because one of the main focuses, really the reason that this show even exists is to take science, data, research, evidence, and make that into really practical, implementable, actionable things in people's lives. And, and you're doing that every day, and that's what I find so interesting about what you're up to. So I'd love to start out with the science of giving and why... Do we give? Why don't we give? And what is the impact on us? Yeah, so I can trace the idea back 21 years when we created the reciprocity ring. It's an activity for teams or groups in which people ask for and give help to one another. And we created it as a giving activity, a generosity activity. But we learned very early on that getting people to help and to give seemed natural. People really liked doing that. The real problem was getting people to ask for what they needed. 
You know, you can't give unless you know what another person needs. And so what we discovered through the reciprocity ring and then the research that we've conducted since is that the key to giving and receiving is the request. That's the catalyst that drives the whole process. Not what I expected, but that's what the data show. Givers will give if you make it easy for them to give. And they need that. And they also obviously need someone to ask because no one wants unsolicited help. We all get that from time to time and we're never really happy about it. So the process starts with the person asking for help. And that really is the key. And then what we want to do is make sure that we create an environment where we're encouraging that process to continue, both on the asking for help side, but also on the giving side. And we want to protect against generosity burnout and, and things like that. Yeah, I can add a bit to that. Larry, you mentioned that no one likes unsolicited help. My 18-year-old who is finishing uh, high school remotely here could attest to that. He doesn't like any unsolicited help from me at all. It's a common trait that we all run into with lots of family members. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great insight. And and, I mean, it it comes back to uh, one of the most interesting things, Wayne, about your work that I find so intriguing is that it wasn't getting people to give that's the problem. It's actually the opposite, which is getting people to ask for help. It's so you, you wouldn't think that that would be the issue. And yet that's really what the challenge was. Yeah, it was really a surprise. I'm driven by the evidence and by the data. And then it was just really clear that that was the case. So part of our research has been to identify and then circumvent or overcome some of the obstacles or the barriers to asking. So a very common one is that People are reluctant to ask because they are concerned or they fear that they'll be perceived to be incompetent or weak. They can't do their job. They're uneducated. But there's new research that's come out that says as long as you make a thoughtful request, people will think you are more competent, not less. So that's one of the many barriers. One other one I'll I'll mention briefly is that we don't ask sometimes because we think no one can help us. And when we use a lot of the activities that Larry and I have developed and others, sometimes people will take me aside and say, you know, I don't want to ask because I, I know no one here can help me. And my answer is always the same. You never know what people know or who they know until you ask. And when they ask, they're always surprised because they discover that there are all kinds of resources out there somewhere in the network, but they need a mechanism to ask and then to start the movement or circulation of those resources through that network. To add on to that, one of the other challenges in asking is knowing who to ask. And the reciprocity ring was a great example of when you bring a group of people together, they don't have to direct it to any one individual. They don't need to know the person that might have the right answer. They don't have to spend all that time asking John. John's sending a no, I can't help. Go to Sally. Sally can't help. Then you go to Bob and maybe Bob helps. But when you can ask a group of people, it becomes a lot more efficient. And it also, I think, reduces the risk of that individual. They don't feel like they're taking up one person's time. They're making it easier. They're hitting 10, 15, 20 people at a time in a reciprocity ring. And and Givitas lets you do that with hundreds and thousands of people. And so one of the things that we see is that reducing that stigma of asking for help is really key, but also is to make it easy to ask for help, especially when you don't know who to ask. An interesting stat from our platforms that we see is that the givers will outnumber the people that ask for help about 2.4 to 1. The key is getting those people to ask. It's a really good point, Larry. And one of the benefits of posting your request or your ask to an entire group is that it kind of eliminates or at least reduces giver burnout because you're not going to the, the usual suspects, the same people, but rather you're casting a wide net. The other advantage is that you discover that help comes from places you would never expect. I remember when I was writing my latest book that I use Givitas quite frequently to post a request for, say, a new example or a fresh example of something or a practice that would illustrate these principles. And it was amazing. I got connected to people from all over the world who I never would have met. One of my favorite ones was a person who's an HR director for one of the aboriginal corporations in Alaska. Someone who was not someone I would meet in my normal travels, and yet it was really, really helpful. So you never know where the help will be, and a tool like Givitas really enables you to, in a sense, kind of search the world for the person that's got the contact or the resource you need. So there's two concepts that I want to drill down on a little bit. One is, and we talked about this 
in your previous interview, Wayne, but I want to make sure that listeners who might not have heard that understand what we're talking about. Can you give a little bit of background on what a reciprocity ring is and some of the findings that have come out of using those? Sure. Glad to. The So when we say reciprocity, we often think about what we call direct reciprocity. You know, Matt, I help you and you help me, and that's great. We would want that to happen. But there's a more powerful form of reciprocity. We call it generalized reciprocity. So Larry helps me, and of course, I'm more likely to help him to pay back that help. But I'm also grateful for the help that I received, and I'm more likely to pay it forward and help you or help someone else, and the chain goes all the way around. And so we had that concept in mind, that generalized form of reciprocity, and said, how can we create an activity that would allow people to experience this and to actually benefit while they have that experience? And so we came up with this idea of, of the reciprocity ring. There's a very particular recipe. So we train people how to run it. You know, there's a poster and materials that go with it and so forth. So it's going to sound simpler than it actually is. But essentially, everyone makes a request to the entire group. And they spend most of the time trying to figure out how they can meet other requests that people have. So you get to make a request. And then you're spending most of your time helping other people meet their requests. And what we find is about 85% of the time that the people you help are not the people who helped you. Rather, it's that more indirect or generalized form of reciprocity. So in brief, you could think about it as a structured or guided, facilitated activity for asking for and giving help that really brings out all of the resources that exist in a group. I love that stat that 85% of the time, the person who helps you is not the person that you helped. And when we look at our lives more broadly with that lens, it really shines light on the fact that you may never know where help is actually going to come from. Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite ones was a senior engineer in a large manufacturing company had a request involving some complex problem he had with a metallurgical process. Now, I had no idea what he was really talking about. But he asked, he said, look, I need to talk to an expert in this particular metallurgical problem. And help came from a 22-year-old admin who had recently been hired by the company. And you would think, well, how would that person be able to help? But she was not an engineer. She said, well, you know, my dad is the world's expert in that problem. And he just retired. And my mom has been encouraging him to spend more time outside of the home. So she's able to tap her network and connect her dad with this engineer. And together they solve the problem. And if you take that and think about, you know, when you're doing it in a face-to-face environment, it's, it's, it's remarkable how powerful that network and how far that network can reach of 20, 25 people that, that you're with um, and the people that they know. Now, now say you're in, a, in an online reciprocity ring or what we call Givitas and you're, and you're dealing with 200, 500, 1,000, 2,000 people and how much power you have. You really get that multiplicative uh, impact in terms of that reach, which is phenomenal. If you hit such a big group of people, at some point, does it start to break down in terms of it becomes almost too anonymous to really be able to understand and help people their problems? Or have you found that it's actually the opposite and the larger network really ends up creating a lot more value for people? I think it's the opposite in many ways. The key thing is, is that we also want to balance that, that generosity burnout, right? Selfless people often will say yes to everything and they get sucked into this time warp and they can't really do their own job and get their own things done. Or a typical social network lures you into that social network and you spend two hours on it bouncing around and watching videos and all kinds of crazy stuff these days. And you re- don't realize where the time went. Givitas is really structured in that same way the reciprocity ring is. In many ways, it's an online manifestation of the reciprocity ring. And so you have that structure, so it makes it really easy. We use the phrase, be a giver on five minutes a day or five minutes a week. When you look at a typical network or a community forum or a listserv, you see topics posted. Sometimes people are boasting. Sometimes they're bragging. Sometimes they're making a joke. Sometimes they're commenting on things that aren't relevant. It's hard to make sense of it all, and it gets really, really noisy really fast. We create smaller communities. It's not open for everybody. It's an invited group of people, but still can be in the thousands. And the beauty is, is there's some structure to it. So you know when a request is made, you know when someone makes an offer or help to it. And so it makes the process of going through the items that much quicker and easier. And it really is about that efficiency 
And, you know, again, givers will give when you make it easy and givers will give because they want to be recognized for it and they want to be shown thanks and gratitude. And we can do all that in the platform, which is makes it really, really powerful. Yeah, I can add to that. You know, I think larger is better. What we found is that there's a tipping point, kind of a critical mass, and it's generally a larger network uh, works better and better. Uh, we've also found that it's helpful to have a an affinity or a common topic or interest. So give you a couple of examples. There's a Givitas community for people in HR, human resources, you know, people who are in HR or have an interest in that. There's another for women at work, one on people analytics, one for associations, another for nonprofits. You know, people have a common interest or that affinity. And what we found is that people are just really, really helpful. And it's I kind of think of it as the kindness of strangers, uh, that people are really willing. I'm still amazed at some of the help that is given, for example, in that HR ring, where someone will post a request for something that's a pretty complicated HR issue or challenge that they have. And you know, that's been addressed or solved in other companies, but they don't know where, but they find it through this tool. And people will say, oh, here's my 20-slide PowerPoint deck of how we address that problem. And it's really quite amazing, but it's the, it's the large network that really makes it go. I'm also curious, and there's a couple other things I want to dig into too, but what percentage, and you may not have exact metrics around this, but what percentage of asks or problems or challenges go either unanswered or don't get resolved or don't really get sort of forward progress on goal they're trying to get help with? In the Givitas platform, in the reciprocity ring, it's almost, what, 99.5% or more get some sort of help. And all the ones I've seen, I don't think, I can think of maybe one request that nobody was able to offer help on. And, and in the platform, we actually see similar kinds of numbers. It's generally, you know, 98, 99.5%. What's also interesting is on average, we'll see three and a half to four offers of help for each request. A request still has to be a good request. And sometimes when you don't get help, it's because your request was too vague. It wasn't specific enough. There was no realness to it. You know, so there's a, a whole methodology and Wayne's the expert in this to really make it a good request. And that's part of it. But once you make that, then you get that request out there. When you've got a broader network, you're more than likely to get help. And the beauty is, is when you've got a group of people trying to help, you know, you can build on what each other's knowledge is. So you don't even need to have one person that has the whole answer. You might get part of the answer from one person and another part from somebody else. And then a third person weighs in and makes a comment and says, this is right on, but one more thing to think about. And so now you've got really the community helping to solve that problem. And the beauty is it just takes a couple of minutes. And, and so people are, are happy to do it. And we just get incredible response that way. Yeah, what we have found is that a request that is well-formulated is more likely to get a response, even if it's a challenging or difficult request. And so the, the acronym that we use is a SMART request, which is different from a, a SMART goal, the criteria a little bit different. And I'll go through them very quickly, but the S is for specific. And Larry mentioned that already, a general request. Sometimes people make a general request thinking that they're casting a broader net, but it's hard to respond to a really general request. It's a specific request that triggers people's memories of what they know and who they know. So the S is for specific. The M is for meaningful. That's the why of the request. Really critical to do that. I've done some statistical analysis with a colleague of mine on thousands of these requests. And we find that those where people have left off the why or the meaningful part are less likely to get a response because people don't really understand what's behind the request. So the why is really important. A is for action. You ask for something to be done. The R is for strategically realistic. Now, we encourage big requests, stretch requests, small requests, as long as it's real, but it's got to be within the realm of possibility. And then finally, T is time. What's the deadline? And again, here, a very specific deadline is much more motivating to people than a general request. If I said, oh, sometime by the end of the year, you know, people will put it, I mean, I've got post-its on my desk here that are those kinds of requests. Oh, do this when you get to it. Well, I'm not likely to get to it. But if I knew that you needed something in a week, I'm much more likely to respond because I know you need it uh, much more urgently. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Look around! You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Yeah, that's a really good insight. And I love the specificity and all of these different components of making a request that's actually going to get answered because you have so much data from the platform that actually shows quantitatively here are the kinds of requests that get positive feedback, get traction, get answers, and here are the kinds of requests that struggle or that don't. It really, it really plays out. If you ask, hey, um, I'm looking for a new job, no one can really help you, right? But if you say, hey, I'm looking for a job in this field, this is the experience I have, I, I want to do this in the next two months, and, and I want it to be in one of these two cities, people have a chance to help right? It's just so important to drill down into that area that what you really need. And again, it's about making it easy to ask for help, but also making it easier for the givers to give help. I can add a little to that with uh, what we've learned for some of the research that we've published. Nat Buckley and I used a lot of Givitas data and analyzed thousands and thousands and thousands of requests and offers. And we We're interested in two different explanations about why someone would give and why someone would help. And we ran a horse race between these two different competing explanations. One is that I'm more likely to help in order to give a good impression. It's all about impression management. So people will think I'm a generous person and therefore will help me in the future. So it's kind of a reputation thing. The other explanation, the other horse in the race is that I'm more likely to help because I'm paying it forward out of gratitude for help received. So it's a very different kind of motivation. And so we didn't know which way it was going to go, but we had all of this data and we did this very sophisticated statistical analysis control for other factors. And what we found is that the stronger and the longer lasting effect was gratitude for help received. So there was some reputation or impression management going on, but mainly people helped others who hadn't helped them because they were paying it forward because they were so grateful for the help that they had received. I found that one of the most interesting findings from our research. That's great. I love that finding. And it's funny because in many ways, the second order effect of that is that the more you help people down the road, the more help that they're going to give to others and almost a an endless cascade of an upward spiral, if you will, of positive giving and helping. Absolutely. And you you can think about it as not only resources flowing through the network, but positive emotions and even positive energy flowing through the network as well. And when you can build in the gratitude to it as well, right? So first of all, when you see other people help, 
you're encouraged to participate and help. So there's a little bit of maybe call it peer pressure, but that's one way to think about it. Or it's just, hey, they're doing good. I'm going to do good. And most people get a good feeling when, when they help others, right? There's all kinds of research that shows you feel better when you're helping other people. And then the gratitude being shown back, someone saying thank you, you know, we appreciate that. We're grateful for it. Really goes a long way to encourage you to do it again. And I saw some research a while back and it talked about that on average, when people are getting help, it's like 10 to 20% of the time they're saying thank you. It's remarkable how low that number is. And when we can raise that up to 50, 60, 70, 80%, it really creates this, I like to think of it as a cycle of generosity. You help people, you see other people helping, you want to get into that. You want to be part of that. And it just expands that the network so far and so powerful that the help is always there. And so if you, again, if you follow that gratitude, it's really, really an encouraging aspect to continue to be that giver. And one of the great examples of this outside of the data you have from Givitas is, is the classic example. And we talked about in our last interview, Wayne, of the kidney chain. I'd love to just hear that again, explain really briefly, because to me, that's such a great demonstration of the power of, of gratitude and paying it forward and how you can really create a positive impact. Yeah, the kidney chain is truly, truly amazing. Uh, so one of my favorite ones, maybe because I'm, I live here in Michigan, was started by Matt Jones, another Michigander, who was thinking about how could I really do something of great value to another person? And he said, you know, I've got two kidneys. I can live just fine with one. I'm going to look into donating one of my kidneys to a stranger. You can understand donating a kidney to a family member, that sort of thing. He said, no, I want to donate it to a stranger. And he actually had to undergo like an evaluation to make sure that his motivation for this, but it was true altruism. And so he arranged to do that. The person who received that kidney, that person's life was saved as a result of receiving that kidney. Now that person was married to someone who would have donated his kidney, but they weren't compatible blood types or whatever. He said, you know, but what I'm going to do is that I'm going to pay it forward and I'm going to donate one of my kidneys to another stranger. And then the stranger who received it, one of that person's relatives did the same thing. And it was this kidney to kidney to kidney, this whole stranger chain of people giving the gift of life through donating kidneys. And some of these kidney chains are really, really long now. And there are some hospitals who actually have created a mechanism to allow people to do this. Because we know there's always a shortage for human organs. And really quite amazing to see this as one of the most uh, vivid illustrations of true human generosity in a kidney chain. And it comes back to that same concept of one act of giving. It has the potential to be a chain reaction. But the thing that's stopping that giving from being unlocked is not a willingness to give. It's a willingness to ask. That's absolutely right. What I think about is there are four types that we've shown in our research, and we've developed an assessment that will assess your propensity to give and your pr propensity to ask or to request. The best place to be is what we call the giver requester. Now, that's someone who is generous, who freely gives, who gives without expectations of return, and they will make requests when they have a need. They do both. And they're very well regarded for their generosity, and they're the most productive because they get the inflow of answers, questions, resources, things that they need, that input in order to be successful. Another type that we see is probably the most common type is the overly generous giver, the person who gives a lot but doesn't ask for what they need. That's where burnout occurs. And the remedy to that is twofold. One is you need to put boundaries on givings so you don't overcommit your resources or overtax yourself, but you also need to make requests. And if you've been helping a lot of people, there's a lot of people out there who want to help you in return. The opposite of the overly generous giver is the selfish taker. They have no problem asking, but they don't give very often. And what we found in the reciprocity ring and give it to us is that if you have takers in there, they will still give because both of these are transparent, so you know whether someone's giving or not. And that's one reason why these tools work so well is that even the selfish taker will give when it's transparent. The rounded out, the fourth type is what we call the lone wolf. And in some ways, it's the most tragic or the saddest of the four types because they don't give, they don't ask, 
they're pretty disconnected from the whole world, just got their head down trying to do their work. And they're not very successful because you really do need input from other people to truly be successful. Yeah, the power of the exercise and the experience, getting those takers to participate. And you could argue that they may be doing it for the wrong reason, but they're not doing it necessarily out of the goodness of their heart. But nonetheless, they're sharing information, knowledge, experience, and helping other people. And that's what really counts. And so you know, they may be doing it because everyone sees them do it, but because others are doing it, they don't want to be left behind. They don't want their reputation tarnished. To some extent, you can keep score, right? We have metrics and analytics around who's giving, who's helping, and so on. And so that encouragement to get the takers to participate and help others really helps the whole community so much. Without the reciprocity ring or without give a toss, if these people are left alone working in a cube somewhere, it doesn't happen. But when you can bring them together in these communities, you can start to get that value and, and let it be shared amongst the participants. Don't Larry, that makes me think of, a, of another advantage that we've observed, and there's a lot of science to back this up, is that even when people, when they go into the tool, and let's say they're not doing anything, maybe they're lurking a little bit, they're still learning and they're acquiring what is called ambient knowledge is that you get to see who knows what you get to see the network that's out there as well. And that's all really useful knowledge to be accumulating. So there are those secondary benefits by accumulating that ambient knowledge by just observing what's going on. And you not only learn from what other people are saying, you start to get more confident that you also can make that request. I mean, starts to change people's attitudes and behaviors. There's a huge stigma about asking for help. And it sometimes is mind boggling that people are afraid to ask for help, but everybody is. It's that exposure that they don't want to show they're weak. Now you think about most corporate worlds, people are afraid to ask for help because they're going to be looked at like they don't know what they're doing. The way it should be looked upon is you're willing to ask for help. You're willing to raise your hand. That's a sign of strength. It's a sign of strength because you're putting the project you're working on, the customer you're supporting, the company you're working for in front of your own ego. And then you start to, when that works and, you, and you're willing to ask and people help you, now you're the perfect employee. You know, you are doing what's right for the organization, for your customer, and everyone's able to help each other. And it has a huge bottom line impact on the business, on people's success, on people's careers. As a participant, you start to feel that the organization is there to help you, not to find your mistakes and, get, and punish you and get rid of you but to help you be successful. It just builds and it's this cycle of generosity that people start to really reach their potential, in many cases, even exceed their potential. Really interesting insights. And I'm curious from both perspectives, let's take, and I know there's mixes and matches in people that have each of these characteristics, but let's say for people who aren't asking enough, how can they ask more? And, how, and we've already talked a little bit about how can they make better asks but how can they ask more? How can they overcome that fear, that shame, that uncertainty around asking for help? On the other end of the spectrum, people who are takers, what advice or feedback would you have for them about why they shouldn't be such a taker, why they should give more? Let me address the first part of that, which is how can you encourage or enable people to ask more? There's a process for doing this. So there's four steps to it. So the first is that you need to sit down and think about your goals. What are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to accomplish? Oftentimes people will make a request and they haven't thought it through and they end up getting a resource they really don't need. So it begins with the objective. What's the goal? And then the second part is to say, okay, if I've got that goal in mind, what resource do I need? And there we encourage people to think very broadly. It could be information, ideas, expert advice, referral, a connection, a report, financial resources, whatever it is that you would need. But think about what are the resources I need to accomplish that goal. Then the third part is to make a smart request. And we already talked about what a smart request means. And then the fourth step is to then, okay, who am I going to ask? Am I ask a particular person? Am I going to ask in a group? Am I going to use Givitas to post to a large network of people? But you need some thought, you need some preparation to figure that out. Yeah, I could also say that there are three methods that I write about these in my book, which is there's the quick start method, the goal articulation method, and visioning. 
So the quick start method, as the name implies, is a very quick way of figuring out what are you trying to accomplish and what's a resource you might need. And it's a series of incomplete sentences and you need to fill in the blanks. And I'll just tell you two of them now. And so you think about how you would fill in these blanks. So I am currently working on and I could use. So if you could fill in those two blanks, you get a sense of what you're trying to accomplish and a resource that you need. Or if you say, one of my biggest challenges now is, and I would benefit from, sitting down and thinking about that will help you think about that goal and the resource that you need. So I've used this quick start method with executives uh, quite frequently, give them about 10 minutes and they fill out these incomplete sentences and they get a really good sense of what is it that they need. The goal articulation method takes longer, but essentially it means in each of domains of your life, could be personal life, fitness, your spiritual life, it could be work, career, profession, whatever it is. You know, what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? What resources do you need? And then visioning is very powerful. It takes the longest. It's creating a narrative, a written description in vivid, inspiring detail of that life you want to have, say, three, five years from now. And if you could write that out in that vivid detail, say, well, that's what I want. That's who I want to be. Even that's where I want to live. Well, there's a lot of goals in there and you need a lot of resources. And what we've learned is that if you've written it down, if you've shared that written vision with other people, people will start helping you right away. It's as if the vision is a request itself. I'll give you another real life example. So we were working with a large technology organization and there was a bit of a culture issue at this company. I'm not going to name the name of it. And one of the great ways to get any community or any organization to get over that stigma of asking for help is to have the leaders ask for help. And so in a company, it's the leaders of the company or, or the division, or we have a community where it's maybe followers of a thought leader. And if you can get that thought leader to make that request, everyone is inspired to also make a request, right? So it can be a formal leader or an informal leader. You're talking about big companies with big political structures. It gets hard for those people sometimes to ask for help. Sometimes they're the worst about it, right? And so we actually created a polling feature so that they could look to get input to make it a little easier for them to take that step in and ask for help, right? So instead of asking for how to solve a certain problem, they may ask for their sales team for input on which of the following three things are your biggest challenge to hitting your quota this quarter. And it starts the process rolling. So leading by example is a great way to help reduce that stigma. And then the other, I think, really important aspect of it is, is to celebrate the people that are asking for help, you know, recognize them and celebrate it. Our first instinct is to celebrate the people that offered the help, which that's important as well. But we want to celebrate the people that made the ask because that is the harder part. Other people see that celebration. They want to be part of it, too. They see that it's a positive experience that you didn't know what you were doing and you were willing to raise your hand and ask for help as opposed to a negative experience. Those are such important points. It's very important for the leader to recognize and acknowledge not only those who help, but those who are willing to request and to ask. And a leader should do both. And another point, just to reinforce something that you said, is that the leader should be the role model of the behavior that they want in other people. If the leader's not willing to make a request for what they need, it's harder for everyone else to do it. The leader needs to make a request as well to be what I sometimes call the chief help seeker. That's another role for the leader is to be the person who will use the poll function, ask a question that way, or come right out and make a request. But by doing that, they're modeling the behavior that they want in other people. Showing a little vulnerability, right? That none of us know everything. Let's look for the group to help us where we can and make everybody stronger and better. Great insight. And I, I love the idea around leaders leading with their own behavior and being willing to ask for help. Such an important insight. I want to come back to the other side of the coin too. If you're a taker, why should you change your behavior? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the evidence should convince the taker that they could be much more successful if they also give. If they realize that by giving and being generous, even if they're doing it for impression management or reputation building, they're still giving. They realize if they do that, that they will be more successful. People will be more likely to help them. You know, so I think it's partly education. It's also practices, you know, giving them tools or routines in which they can do both. They can give and they can ask. 
yeah, I think the evidence should convince people that if you want to maximize your effectiveness, your creativity, and your performance, you want to do both. I have a saying that I didn't make up. I think Edward Deming was the first person that, that said it, but you can't manage what you don't measure. It's so important to have metrics around that because now you can demonstrate to these people, you know who's asking for help, you know who's giving help. And so now you can start to really give them the evidence there that this is what's going on. And when they see that other people are doing it, takers often want to be the superstar. They don't want to share because they feel like it's them against their peer instead of them against the competition. Jack Welch was a great leader. His theory was, and it was right for that time that, you know, you take the bottom 10% of your organization, you get them out, you get them to somewhere else in the company where they can be successful or you get them out. It sent a message to people that it wasn't about doing your best. It was about doing better than your peers. And that sort of reinforces this idea of being a taker and not being a giver. You know, you roll the clock forward. And when Adam came out with give and take and the reciprocity ring, it changes the dialogue. And now it's about you can be a giver and be successful. And that's so powerful. And, you know, it's really been a transformation through my career in the 80s and 90s. It was like looking at guys like Jack Welch, who was incredibly successful, but modeling that. I remember one of my first mentors gave me the book, The Art of War, you know, and kill or be killed, right? That's not the way it has to be. We can help each other and still be successful. And the metrics and the measurements also help you really identify who those takers are. By those being visible, you can encourage them that there is a better way and get them to participate. That's a great distinction between doing your best versus doing better than your peers because you can often confuse yourself and think that maybe those are the same thing, but the reality is that there's a really big distinction between those two. Yeah, it's the team that wins, right? And we see great examples of that in the sports world, but it really applies to the community, to the business. I mean, if we think about what people are going through today with with COVID-19 and the challenges that it's facing. And it's helping each other that gets us through it and makes us all successful. It's actually really interesting. We've seen a huge increase in the number of requests as a result of what's going on in our, in our platform. And I was looking at this data earlier today, 25% of the requests made in our platform since beginning of March have had the word COVID, corona, or pandemic in it, right? And so even when we have these horrible situations that we're in, we can get help from our peers, our neighbors, our colleagues, our community, and we can also help them. And that really becomes a powerful tool. How do you avoid giving burnout? Making it easy to be a giver. There's a lot of different strategies that I've heard, and I think some of them are really effective. It depends a little bit on your personality, I think, how well you can do it. You know, some people say spend a certain amount of time every day and focus on that. Others will say spend just one day a week, part of one day a week, you know, compartmentalize it and get all you're giving out in that in that one period so you feel better because you see the magnitude of it. I've always personally struggled with that. It's the flood of email. You're just sort of dealing with it as it comes in. And it's so easy to take a request that comes in. And it, to, to Wayne's point earlier, if it's not specific, if there's no deadline, it sits in my inbox and I forget about it. And I wake up one, one night at two in the morning realizing I never answered that person. So if we can create an environment where it's easier to be a giver, and I think that has a number of components in it. One is when it's directed to a network, anybody can help out. So you don't always have to be that one person. The fact that you can see what other people have done, you're not re recreating the wheel. The worst feeling in the world, I think, as a giver is when you spend your time you offer that help and you're really thoughtful about it and you maybe make an introduction and the response is, oh, I've already solved that problem, right? So understanding the status of a request, does it still need help? So when we do all those things, we can start to make it a lot more efficient. That's one of the ways to really help with that burnout. People have to also balance it, right? The idea that when we can use the network, harness the collective intelligence of the network, it takes the burden off of any one person and the network's able to contribute and help. And by helping, you also become a better person because not only do you feel good, but you sometimes will learn that material or learn that information and even get a little bit better at it because you had to articulate it to somebody else. And so if you always go to the expert, you get the same answer all the time and the expert gets burnt out. But if the expert can help one person and then they can help somebody else, you start to get more innovation that can happen as well. And for people who want to start asking for help more frequently or giving help, 
what is one action item or concrete piece of homework that you would give them to start implementing this in their lives? Yeah, I would say to pause perhaps at the beginning of the day when you get up, get a cup of coffee, start your computer, is to pause for a few minutes and think about what am I trying to accomplish today? What are my objectives? What are my goals for today? And then, and actually write them down. And then from that, I think quite naturally, it flows, okay, well, what do I need? And then what do I need to ask for in order to accomplish that goal? At least make some progress on that. I've known people that have established that as a daily habit, usually in the morning. And they say it's been really, really helpful to do that. It doesn't, it only takes a couple of minutes, but it kind of clears your mind, focuses you on what you're trying to accomplish, what you need. And that makes it a lot easier to ask. Practice can help as well. And I think when you giving and helping others, we've seen from a lot of people in our communities, you know, we'll ask them, hey, you've, you've offered help to six people. How come you haven't made a request? Well, I don't do that. And I think when you think about the help you're giving and you can actually try to take that and say, now I'm going to give someone else the opportunity to be a giver because I'm going to make an ask. And so it's another way to give value and benefit to somebody else is let them be a giver. And I think if you turn it around that way for certain people, the people that just naturally don't want to ask for anybody, they don't want to burden anybody. It's not a burden when you ask for help. It's actually enabling them to be a giver. And, and that's a different perspective on how to look at it. If you're not asking, you're not enabling other people to be givers, to be generous, and that it's a duty or a responsibility to request. It's not a burden. And most people are delighted to help. And sometimes it's very easy for a person to help even though the benefit might be very big to you as, as the requester. So you really should think about it as a required essential part of the whole process itself is asking as well as giving. So if you're a leader, let's say you're running a group, you know, 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 people, and you want to create this collaborative, generous community that's helping each other, most leaders think I'm there to solve everybody's problem. Sometimes even if you know the answer, if you can ask the crowd to help you and they start to solve that problem, they're energized. They feel good about it. They want to give to their colleague. I mean, that's how you create that teamwork. It's another way of leading by example. Wayne, you brought up another really good point a second ago, which is in many ways, making a good ask really starts with self-awareness and beginning with what do you need help with? What are you working on right now? And what are your goals and priorities? Because if you don't even have clarity about that, then you can't formulate a well-articulated smart ask. Then you, you may not get the help that you ultimately want. Absolutely. You know, if you think about, if you did that at the beginning of every morning, okay, what am I trying to accomplish today? What you're doing is creating a vision of success for yourself. That's what you're trying to accomplish today. Here's the resources you need. And you're going to request them either directly from someone, perhaps through LinkedIn, email, through Givitas, through another platform, is that, you know, you're creating that vision. That's what a successful day is going to look like. If you think about the opposite, uh, sometimes, and I have to say, sometimes I fall into this myself. I turn on my email. I see all the stream of emails. And I start answering those emails. And a couple hours goes by and I realized that was important, but I really didn't set aside time to focus on what I'm supposed to be accomplishing today. It's really important to do that and enables you to, to perform at a much higher level if you do that on a regular basis, if you make it a habit. Yeah, I love that. Even just, just checking in for a few minutes at the beginning of the day, what are your goals and is what you're doing aligned with those goals? If you just did that, you're going to see a massive impact over time on how you spend your time and, and ultimately the results that you create. Absolutely. And you can think about it in your personal life too. You know, so it's not just in your work life, but you know, what are you trying to accomplish with your family, with your relationships, with your community, with different you know, groups you might be a part of? And if you think about it, it doesn't take very long to do it, but if you can develop that habit, it can be extremely powerful. For listeners who want to learn more about Givitas, who want to get involved, who want to make some asks and get help, where can they find more information and get into this online? So we've created a, a handful of communities that are free for anybody to participate. Wayne mentioned a few of them before. There's a group of HR leaders. There's a group of uh, association leaders. There's a group for nonprofit leaders. And we've also created a group for listeners of your podcast. So the science of success. And so if you go to givitas.com slash free, F-R-E-E, 
and Givitas is G-I-V-I-T-A-S. You'll see a list of those. And one of them is the Science of Success podcast community. And people can join and they can help each other and ask questions of those audiences and start to put all of these ideas into practice and learn how to do them in that community. And then they can take them to the other parts of their life. And I can attest as a participant in uh, several of those communities, they are extremely effective. I've found them so effective for the work that I've been trying to do when I've been writing my latest book. And it is so easy to help. Every morning I'll look through and say, okay, here's the dozen requests that have come in. I said, oh, I can help on that one. I click, I do it. It doesn't take much time at all. And I realized that day I actually was able to help someone. And oh, by the way, I got some help too. Another resource I can give is the website for my new book. And there's a lot of free resources. I mentioned an assessment. That is a free assessment you can take uh, through the website. And the nice thing besides being free is that it will give you a comparison of your results to the population of people taking the assessment. And the URL for that is the title of the book, all you have to do is ask.com. So if you go to there, you can find that and many other free resources. And those really support and augment all we're trying to do with Givitas and the company that Larry is leading. Well, Larry, Wayne, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your research and, and the work that you've done. It's so great to see you putting this whole framework into practice and really helping people ask and helping people get help. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure to be on with you again. Great speaking with you, Matt. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Mm-hmm.